Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with the world lead. In minutes, President Joe Biden will speak after imposing sweeping sanctions on Russia, blocking 46 Russian officials, operatives, and entity, all of them from uh, entering the United States and also uh, preventing Americans from doing business with them. The Biden administration also today expelling an additional 10 Russian diplomats slash operatives from the United States. The moves are, the administration says, punishment for Moscow's interference in the 2020 election, its occupation of the Ukrainian territory, Crimea, and the massive solar winds cyber attack, publicly acknowledged in December. You might recall that was a massive cyber breach of U.S. companies and different U.S. government agencies. The United States, for the first time today, formally named the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, called the SVR, as the perpetrator of the solar winds attack. And the Biden administration also revealed some new details about Russia's interference in the 2016 election. The U.S. now disclosing what has long been suspected, but never stated outright by the U.S. government, that Russian agent Konstantin Kalimnik, who received those sensitive internal polling data information from the Trump campaign in 2016, specifically from Paul Manafort, that he gave that information, Kalimnik, to Russia's intelligence services. You might recall former President Trump denied and downplayed Russia's actions. He he ultimately pardoned Manafort for separate offenses. Now, as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports, today's move suggests clearly a a very different approach regarding Russia than that of Biden's predecessor. Harsh and wide-ranging punishments today from the Biden administration against Russia an aggressive response to Russian interference in U.S. elections and their recent historic cyber attack. Our objective here is to impose um, costs uh, for what we feel are uh, are unacceptable actions uh, by the Russian government. Among those actions, Russia's attempt to influence the 2020 presidential election. 32 people and entities were sanctioned today, including for the use of disinformation websites like these, spreading lies directed by Russia's main intelligence agencies. Russian efforts and operations were global, a network in Africa and companies in Pakistan. Then there's the 2016 presidential election. The U.S. Treasury Department also targeted Russian Konstantin Kalimnik for giving Russian intelligence polling data and campaign strategy in that race. Kalimnik was also sanctioned for interfering in the 2020 race. He's a longtime associate of 2016 Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, who officials say also promoted the idea that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election, a conspiracy theory also pushed by former President Trump. For the first time today, the U.S. also named the Russian intelligence agency behind the unprecedented cyber attack known as the Solar Winds hack, uncovered late last year. 
a sophisticated campaign into at least nine U.S. federal agencies and around 100 companies. Cracking down on Russian intelligence, the Biden administration sanctioned six technology companies connected to them and announced it would kick out 10 Russian diplomats from the embassy in Washington, including known spies. One issue where Russia was not punished is for the reported bounties that Russia put on the heads of American troops in Afghanistan, reports that Biden used during the campaign to blast Trump. As president, I will never, never, never stand silently in the face of intelligence reports that the Kremlin has put bounties on the heads of U.S. troops serving in Afghanistan. The intelligence on that, Biden officials now say, isn't strong enough to demand action now. Instead, they'll respond through diplomats and the military. And the Russians knew that this U.S. action was coming because President Biden told President Putin on a phone call they had a few days ago. Now, Biden says he's going to talk about that call with Putin in just a little bit. Before these sanctions came out earlier today, Putin's spokesman, Jake, said that they consider them to be illegal. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California, the chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Chairman Schiff, thanks for joining us. So the intent of these new sanctions is to deter Russia, but you say that sanctions alone are not enough. What other actions do you think the Biden administration needs to take? Well, particularly in the cyber arena, uh, there are certain things that sanctions just aren't going to deter. If the Russians think it's in their advantage uh, to steal certain information, whether it's trade secrets or uh, national security secrets, they're going to try, uh, and we are just going to have to really harden our cyber defenses. If we're really, really good, we might detect in advance uh, maybe, I don't know, 25, 50, even 75 percent uh, of planned attacks by Russia or China, um, probably a lot less, frankly. Uh, the rest are going to get through, and so we need to make sure that, uh, first and foremost, our defenses are much stronger than they are today. These sanctions also reveal uh, a new acknowledged public link uh, between the Trump campaign in 2016 and Russia, the U.S. now designating Konstantin Kalimnik a known Russian agent and revealing that Trump campaign official Paul Manafort gave Kalimnik sensitive internal polling, which we already knew, and campaign strategy information. But now the U.S. intelligence is acknowledging publicly for the first time that Kalimnik gave that information to Russian intelligence. Now, you led the committee's uh, probe into Trump and Russia. You've gotten a lot of heat, frankly for suggesting that there was proof of conspiracy or collusion that Mueller did not definitively prove. So so what do you make of this announcement? Well, I think it's just further evidence of the fact that the Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was giving internal campaign polling data and strategic information to an agent of Russian intelligence. Uh, and, you know, I think if that, if that were something done by a Democratic president administration, um, then I think Republicans would universally say, well, that's exactly what collusion is. Uh, it doesn't matter what party is responsible. That kind of unethical, immoral conduct, unpatriotic conduct ought to be condemned. But look, it's a direct link between the Trump campaign giving that information at a time when the Russians were engaged in trying to help Trump win through this social media campaign in which that very data given to Russian intelligence, would help that clandestine social media campaign. There's a, another thing we learned today, uh, perhaps more flattering uh, to President Trump, which is uh, about this bounty story. Now, as a candidate, Biden accused Trump of betraying his presidential duty by not punishing Russia after these reports that Russia put bounties on American soldiers in Afghanistan. 
But now President Biden is not punishing Russia for that, specifically because the intelligence community says that they only have low to moderate confidence that it's an accurate story. So it looks as though in this case, Trump might have had the right response, don't you think? Well, I don't think Trump had the right response in that he didn't uh, confront the Russians on this. He didn't even appear to take the issue very seriously. Um, You know, it's my sense that the intelligence community believes that the Russians did engage in this conduct, but they don't have the requisite level of confidence in that conclusion uh, to go forward with sanctions on that basis. Um, What it also tells us, though, is that with respect to those areas that they have moved forward on, just how solid they view the intelligence to be uh, in terms of Russia's intervention in 2016 and our 2020 election, in terms of Russia's responsibility for the solar winds hack and other malign activity, um, it just shows you just how very confident they are in that intelligence. Um, So Biden spoke with Putin this week in the readout of the call. Uh, Biden did not bring up imprisoned Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, nor did he bring up either of the former U.S. Marines that are currently in Russian jails unjustly, Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan. Was that a mistake for him to not bring those three men up? Well, I believe, and and, uh, I I can't be 100 percent sure about this, but in the last call uh, with Putin, this is, I think, the second call that that I know of, uh, he did raise the issue of Navalny. Uh, and those things need to be front and center uh, in terms of our relationship. But, um, but uh, you know, I think the, the president obviously had a whole array of priorities uh, in this particular uh, call with Putin. Uh, and I think that those issues, though, uh, if there is a summit, they absolutely have to be on the table. Uh, and we have to impress upon Putin in every way we can um, that we will respond when they poison uh, Putin's opponents, and we will respond when they unjustly uh, imprison people, particularly when they take action against uh, U.S. citizens. Well, let's talk about that proposed summit, uh, which Biden proposed might happen in the coming months with Putin. Today, Biden administration officials uh, say Biden wants to build a more stable and predictable relationship with Russia. How can that happen based on all the activities Russia is engaged in? Well, you know, I think what the president has done, which makes sense, is uh, to push back hard in areas where the Russians are acting uh, in ways that are antithetical to our interests and uh, to the international um, uh, institutions and rule of law, but at the same time recognize there are some common interests. Limiting nuclear weapons is a deep common interest. Avoiding um, unexpected uh, uh, warfare, blundering into warfare is a common interest. Uh, And so I think that uh, it was very smart of the administration, frankly. At the same time, they're embarking on this strong pushback on Russian malign activities to keep the door open and say, we recognize there's some common interest and we want at least some predictability in the relationship. All right, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California, the House Intelligence Committee Chairman. Thanks for your time today, sir. Good to see you. Good to see you. And we are waiting for President Biden to come out and address Uh, these new Russian sanctions, these new sanctions, rather, on Russia for the hack attacks, for the election interference, for Crimea. We're going to bring that to you live when he comes out and hits the microphone there. And as the defense rests in the Derek Chauvin murder trial, police in Chicago are releasing video of a different deadly police shooting, this one involving a 13-year-old. It's different from the Floyd case, but it is disturbing nonetheless. Stay with us. 
And we're back with our national lead now. All of the evidence has been presented and every witness has now testified in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Today, both the prosecution and the defense officially rested their cases and closing arguments are expected to start on Monday morning, putting Chauvin's fate in the hands of a jury of his peers, which means we could theoretically be just days away from a verdict in this crucial trial, as CNN's Sarah Seidner now reports. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. For the first time since the start of the trial, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin spoke in court. Do you feel that your decision not to testify is a voluntary one on your behalf? Yes, it is. He chose not to take the stand as a witness in his own defense, leading the defense to rest its case. Your Honor, at this time, the defense rests. The prosecution then brought back its star medical witness to refute the idea brought up by yesterday's defense expert. It is an extremely toxic gas. That exhaust from the squad car's tailpipe possibly led to carbon monoxide poisoning of George Floyd. Do you agree with that proposition that's highlighted there? No, I do not. It's simply wrong. The prosecution also attempted to introduce new lab result evidence about carbon monoxide poisoning. It was uh, discovered yesterday by uh, Dr. Baker. It would return a value for the carbon monoxide content and then would show whether or not that result is in the normal range or not. The defense argued the late evidence entry by the prosecution should lead to a mistrial. It's our position that these new test results should not go in front of the jury, first and foremost. And second, um, if they were, I would be moving for a mistrial. The judge agreed. I find that the Dr. Fowler's report gave sufficient notice to the state that carbon monoxide, the carbon monoxide that potentially was in George Floyd's blood, uh, could have affected cause of death. The late disclosure has prejudiced the defense. It's not going to be allowed. A short time later, all witness testimony came to an end. The state of Minnesota rests. So the defense and the prosecution have both rested, as you heard there, which means the jury will hear closing arguments on Monday, the judge says, and they could very well get the case on Monday as well and start deliberating. Now, I do want to mention this. Just a few minutes ago, about five minutes ago, I spoke with Philonis Floyd, who talked about what it was like being inside of the court and watching much of this trial. He said it was extremely difficult, extremely emotional, and he believes that all the evidence anyone needed to see in this case is the video that the world saw. And he said he's hoping the jury, in his words, gives the family justice. Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Jennifer, let me start with you. The defense rescue today, they call seven witnesses over two days. They, they only have to sway one juror, only have to convince that one person on the jury uh, that there's reasonable doubt to have a hung jury. Do you think that the defense might have succeeded in achieving that? I don't think so, Jake. You know, their their goal, of course, was to, to throw a bunch of arguments out there and hope that something resonated with the jurors. But, you know, I just think that's too much to overcome with that video. You know, their witnesses, I think, were not as strong as the prosecution's. The cross-examination by the prosecutors was very, very effective. And so while they only need one, jurors tend to be collegial. They tend to collaborate. And when they get back in their jury room, they often sometimes compromise. So hung juries aren't as common as some people think. And I think this jury likely will be able to reach a verdict here. Van, what do you think? Well, I I certainly hope so. Um, You know, I don't think we should forget how hard it is for some people to accept that someone with a badge, someone with a uniform, someone who's been entrusted by society to uh, to enforce the law 
could just really be a despicable, horrible human being, which is obviously what we're looking at. We've seen no remorse from this officer. Uh, we saw no emotion from this officer. The idea that a sociopath could be walking around with a gun and a badge in our society, for some people, it's just too much. And they will look for ways to reaffirm their own view that, that all police officers are all saints and superheroes. The question is, when they were in the jury selection process, how effective was the prosecution in weeding out people who think that way? Uh, if they were effective at getting those kind of extreme people out, they should be fine. But all you need is one to slip through and you got a problem. Jennifer, explain to us what happened today with this carbon monoxide argument. The, the defense, Chauvin's team, had presented an argument uh, from a, a medical expert um, that there are a number of factors that could have led to George Floyd's death, including the exhaust coming from the car. Then there was some sort of debate and discussion today. Explain what happened. So apparently what happened is Dr. Baker, when he saw that testimony from the defense's expert, realized that there was a report about the levels of carbon monoxide in George Floyd's blood that was not turned over. And ultimately that means that it can't be used. It's too prejudicial to the defense to turn over expert reports late in trial. I mean, indeed, after the defense's expert had already testified about that topic. So that was excluded. Prosecutors were effective in their cross-examination on this topic of the defense's doctor, and they also were able to recall Dr. Tobin, who kind of got around it by using different information that actually was in front of the jury, so I don't think it hurt them, but it's an own goal. You should never have a report that just slips through the cracks and doesn't get turned over to the defense because you could wind up in a mistrial situation, so that was unfortunate. an An own goal by the prosecution? Yes, that should never have happened. They should have been able to use that report for for much more than they did. It would have totally eviscerated this argument about carbon monoxide had they been able to just have it come out during Dr. Tobin's testimony in the first place. Van, the jury's going to be sequestered during deliberations. The judge has said, pack for a long stay, hope for a short stay. Do you think we're going to get a quick verdict? What do you think? The longer it waits, the worse it is for the family, the worse it is for the community, and the worse it is for justice. This should be open and shut. Um, to, you know, I, I agree the prosecution did make a mistake with this in this one area, but I'm somebody, as you know, I've been very, I spent 25 years, you know, coordinating litigation and suing police officers, police, police departments, trying to close prisons, et cetera. I have never seen a prosecution team go after a cop like this. They did a great job. Uh, Keith Ellison, the attorney general, needs to be commended uh, for making sure they did a great job. Uh, and it should be open and shut. If they start haggling and haggling and haggling and haggling, what you could wind up with is some compromise thing, uh, uh, you know, where, where you convict them on something small, then the sentencing is, is 12 months or six months, and then you're going to have a very bad outcome. So the longer it waits, it goes, the worse it is. And Jennifer, the jury cannot ask to hear any more te- testimony. They can ask the judge questions. They'll have access to all the evidence that's already been presented. So now the question will be which testimony, which witnesses stuck with them the most? Yeah, and it's really hard to tell. Apparently, and judges differ on their rules on this, he's going to send back all of the evidence for them to peruse you know, at their own leisure. So we won't even know what they're looking at. Oftentimes, and this is how it works in federal court, they'll actually ask a question. They'll ask to see testimony uh, again, to have it read back to them. And so everyone will know kind of what they're focusing on. We won't know that here, but they'll have access to all of that. They can ask legal questions. There certainly will be plenty for them to mull over on these three different 
different charges they have to consider. All right, Jennifer Van, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. We're standing by for President Biden to speak from the White House at any moment. But first, tense moments in a House hearing today with Dr. Anthony Fauci caught in the middle. I don't want you to answer my question. The American people want Dr. Fauci to answer the well, question. What does it have to be? Fire, sir. If you need to respect the chair and shut your mouth. Down and the pressing pandemic questions that led to that exchange, that's next. In our health lead today, Pfizer's CEO says that people will likely eventually need to get a third vaccine dose, a booster, maybe as soon as six months from their first uh, inoculation because protection against COVID reduces over time. This news comes as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now. We're still in a holding pattern regarding the single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine because the CDC says they need more time to make a decision on whether or not they're going to change distribution recommendations. The future of the Johnson & Johnson single-dose COVID vaccine still in limbo. Hopefully, we'll get a decision quite soon as to whether or not we can get back on track with this very effective vaccine. Following reports of at least six cases of rare and severe blood clots among women who had been given the shot, including one death, and a similar case involving one man in the vaccine's clinical trial, a CDC committee chose not to vote on next steps, citing a need for more information, fueling mounting frustration among some in the medical community. Every single day, there are tens of thousands of people who will get infected by COVID. Hundreds of people are going to die. And so I think they could have done something. Also frustrated, some Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill. One of them took on Dr. Fauci today about the pandemic's future. What measure, what standard, what objective uh, outcome do we have to reach before before Americans get their liberty and freedoms back? You know, you're indicating liberty and freedom. I look at it as a public health measure to prevent people from dying and going to the hospital. You don't think Americans' liberties have been threatened the last year, Dr. Fauci? They've been assaulted. Their liberties have. I don't look at this as a liberty thing, Congressman Jordan. Well, that's obvious. Today, the CDC unveiling new evidence showing the number of fully vaccinated people who still contracted the virus, also known as breakthrough illnesses. With more than 78 million Americans fully vaccinated, the CDC is now reporting 5,800 cases of breakthrough infections, among those 396 hospitalizations and 74 deaths. Experts call this very rare and stress the need to keep vaccinating. If we can get more and more people vaccinated, we almost certainly are going to be able to blunt an increase that's a sharp surge in the virus. New COVID cases are climbing in more than half of states, the nation averaging more than 70,000 new cases daily, and a crisis in Michigan growing more worrisome. The state's largest health care provider reporting its hospitals are already 90 to 95 percent full. This time last year, none of us would have imagined going through that extraordinarily difficult time that we would be here again, same time this year. And Jake, a little more on that news from Pfizer CEO Albert Borla about the likely need for a booster within six to 12 months of the original course of vaccines. The CEO stressing that data does show that protection remains extremely high after six months, but that it can go down over time. He says that presents the likely scenario that you could need 
annual revaccination after that. However, they are still waiting for the data to bear that out. Jake? Well, much like the flu shot, you get a, a, a exactly. new flu shot every year. Alexandra Field, thanks so much. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. So San, uh, Sanjay, Pfizer's CEO is now saying people are likely going to need a booster shot within six to 12 months of their initial vaccination. And p- perhaps, perhaps after that, a shot every year. Um, what do you think? Well, I, I think we, we don't know. And, and, and I think it's not, Dr. Burl obviously uh, knows a lot about this, but I think some of this is unknowable at this point because we got to see how long immunity lasts. So that's the thing. I mean, what, what is striking is I think, you know, ultimately I think what we're going to look for is are people getting reinfected? Is there evidence, real world evidence that the immunity is wearing off? SARS, you remember back in 2003, what they found, Jake, was that people who got a SARS infection, they had evidence of T-cell immunity 17 years later. We focus a lot on antibodies because they're easily measurable, but there may be other things that are giving us protection, and we got to see what they are. So maybe we will need a shot, but I I just don't think we know at this point another shot. And what do you make of the CDC uh, delaying its decision on whether or not to continue to authorize use of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. This leaves a lot of states, distribution efforts, people in line, in limbo. Yeah, I, I think I think sometimes a non-decision is a decision, and I, and I think that they need to, to do this. They need, I mean, it's tough. I'm not saying it's easy, but they need to, to make the decision here, make the recommendation in this case to the CDC as to, as to how to proceed. I think what they're saying is we want to see if there's more cases, more people come forward who have this problem. As one attendee said, is this a needle in a haystack or is this tip of an iceberg? I think it's really, really rare. But I think you could also now send a message to all healthcare providers, be on the lookout, uh, but don't necessarily, this is really rare, be on the lookout, but let's not slow down vaccines, uh, you know, uh, for an unnecessarily long time. If the CDC were to pull the J&J vaccine altogether, and they have not done that, but if they were to do that, how much would that set back American efforts in vaccinations and the timeline for getting life back to, to normal? Well, that's the thing. We can put up the numbers here. I mean, there, there's plenty of vaccine that's going to come through Moderna and Pfizer. I think 220 million doses by the end of May for, for Pfizer, uh, 300 million doses by mid-July. You can see the numbers. So we'll, we'll get the doses. The thing about J&J is, as you well know, Jake, others know, it's a single shot. Um, what does that mean? Why is that relevant? Well, you do have transient populations in the country that are less likely or less dependable to come back for their second shot. So it, it, overall, the numbers of vaccines are widely available, but there are certain populations who could benefit from this, which is why I think there's an urge to say, hey, look, make a decision on this so we can decide if we can get that, that vaccine back out there. And, and we're learning more about what are called breakthrough cases, although the breakthrough is not uh, good. Uh, people who get infected with COVID even after being fully vaccinated. Uh, what do we know about this? Are they getting infected but not getting sick? Uh, what does it mean? Right. Yeah, well, we can show you the numbers. So out of uh, fully vaccinated people, I think there were some 5,800 what they call breakthrough infections, uh, 396 hospitalizations, 74 deaths. Give you a little bit of context. On any given day, the death rate uh, is about 10 times that, you know, 730, 740 people. What, what we know about the vaccine is what they were measuring was how good a job does it does at, at preventing people from getting very ill and dying. And it still appears very effective there. There's, we don't know 5,800 people out of how many were vaccinated. It's probably, probably tens of millions of people. So it's not perfect, 
but it does sort of what the outcome measures have shown, which is reduce severe illness, reduce the likelihood of hospitalization, not eliminate it, and greatly bring down deaths. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Any minute now, we're expecting to hear from President Biden at the White House after he announced new sanctions directly targeting Russia today. We'll be right back. We're expecting President Biden at any moment to speak at the White House about Russian sanctions. We're going to bring that to you live, but until he comes to the microphone, let's turn to our politics lead. Today we heard scathing testimony before a House committee about the intelligence and operational failures that led to the deadly January 6th insurrection. Today the Capitol Hill Police Inspector General told members that officers were ordered not to use their most powerful weapons for crowd control even though there were explicit warnings that Congress itself was a target. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins us live now. Jessica, five people were killed on January 6th. How did this happen? You know, Jake, the inspector general says that this was an intelligence and operational failure on multiple levels and that major changes are now needed within the Capitol Police. So the IG testified before House Committee this afternoon, really saying the Capitol Police force was essentially set up to fail from the start. The rank-and-file officers, they were never briefed on the intelligence that the Capitol was the target, or even that a map of the Capitol's complex underground tunnel system had been posted on pro-Trump message boards. And then there were the equipment failures. Officers were specifically instructed not to use certain less lethal weapons, that includes stun grenades. Those could have been used to disperse the mob, and in fact, once the Metropolitan Police Force arrived at the Capitol, they used those same weapons, and that they reported that people started turning around and leaving. But it was too late at that point. The breach had already happened. The IG also documented how Capitol Police were equipped with expired ammunition, ineffective riot shields, and the IG said there needs to be better training, more focus and gathering of and an analyzing of intelligence, and that the Capitol Police should really refocus its mission now. It should turn into more of a protective force than a reactionary force. The IG today really admitting that this will all require a cultural change, but that these big overhauls of the Capitol Police Force, Jake, they are really necessary to ensure that the Capitol is fully protected moving forward if there are other incidents just like this. And Jessica, there was a focus on on the Capitol Police needing to be more of a protection force, as you say, Mm. uh, than than, uh, a reactionary police force. Explain what that means. Yeah, you know, the inspector general put it this way. He said that a police... Uh, police force, they respond if a crime has been committed. Then they move in and they do their investigation. The Capitol Police, he said, needs to really uh, be a proactive force. They need to protect the Capitol. They need to have those systems in place to make sure that they are ready if something happens. You know, he talked about the need for greater intelligence, intelligence sharing, but he also talked about the importance of creating a specific civil disturbance unit that's sort of the elite unit within the Capitol. Capitol Police. He said right now it's just officers that go to that unit when needed, but it needs to be a specific designated civil disturbance unit. They're trained. They have a leadership uh, plan in place that needs to be ready in case this happens again, Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Any minute now, we're expecting to hear from President Biden at the White House after his administration announced new sanctions directly targeting Russia today. Stay with us. We're expecting that at any second. Any moment, we're expecting President Biden to speak at the White House to talk about the fact that today his administration announced dozens of sanctions against Russian individuals and entities for election interference, for the solar winds 
cyber attack and also for Russia's continued occupation of Crimea. President Biden said earlier today he would address those sanctions and his call with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Administration officials have said that Biden still hopes to have a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. Let's discuss all of this with uh, our panel of national security experts, CNN's Alex Marquardt, Jim Shudo, and the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Mike Rogers. Chairman Rogers, let me, let me start with you. First, your reaction to these sanctions. Well, I think it's a good start. Listen, sanctions, we've op- maybe over-relied a little bit when it comes to Russia. We've seen that they've had really mixed results. But I think this is a really important statement for the administration to come out and say, hey, here's the five things you're doing bad and here's the things that we're doing about it up front and more likely to come. I think that's really clear messaging. And if we need anything right now on the Russia relationship, it's clear messaging. What you're seeing is Russia test the administration a little bit. I think this is a good first out of the gate, at least stab at it. More to do, but I thought this was a good first step. Alex, let's talk about the stable and predictable relationship. uh, That's in quotes, stable and predictable relationship uh, with Russia that Biden says he wants to build. How do you create that given Uh, the imprisonment of Navalny, the continued occupation of Crimea, the fact that two U.S. Marines are unjustly in Russian jails right now, not to mention the solar winds hack. How how can there be any sort of stable and predictable uh, relationship with a country that is not stable or predictable? Well, I think that's exactly what Biden's going to come out now and say, and it's what Chairman Rogers was talking about. It's establishing that clear messaging. It's about establishing those parameters, those lines, if you will. Uh, If you cross them, we're going to punish you. So it's clear from the get-go that President Biden wants to have uh, more of an established relationship, more of a normal relationship uh, with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. It was off to a rocky start. I remember President Biden called him a killer out of the gate. Um, He told a story about saying to Putin that he didn't have a soul uh, when they met back in 2011. And now you have this whole raft of sanctions, not just about solar winds, which we were expecting, but 2020 election interference, 2016 election interference, Crimea even. So Biden is now having to walk this careful line of saying, we are going to hit you really hard for all these things that you've done, but I'm a new president and I want to have as he said, a stable and predictable relationship. Jim, also today, uh, some kind of big news, this revelation about this Russian agent, Konstantin Kalimnik. We've spoke about him uh, during the Russian investigation. He was an associate of Paul Manafort. We know that Manafort gave uh, the sensitive campaign information that Manafort had given to him, that he gave it to Russian intelligence. We did not know that before. How significant is it? I mean, even the Mueller report did not go to this degree in making that explicit connection. It raises two very important questions, which we've had for five years. Why did Trump's campaign manager share internal polling data with Russia? What could the possible justification be for that? But also, substantively, did it help Russia interfere in the election in 2016? Did it help target their disinformation better at certain voters in certain swing states? You know, we don't know the answers to those questions, but it certainly makes the connection between the campaign and the help and information it provided a known Russian operative clearer. Uh, and that, you know, gets to this fundamental question about 2016. You know, if there was no collusion, was there cooperation in some way? Uh, you know, you know, there's evidence here of at least helping them out. How much did it help them? It's, Ch- it's a fair question. Chairman Rogers, what do you think Biden, President Biden, needs to say uh, in a couple moments when he starts speaking? 
Uh, first of all, I think he needs to reiterate where he's at with Russia and that he won't tolerate it. I think he's done that. Remember, sanctions are a little underplayed. He's going to have to have some tough statements in there as well, like talking about moving troops into Poland to counter the 80,000 troop buildup on the border. Those are hard things to say, but it's really important that he frames it out in the entire package. Right now, these nits and gnats that we're doing against Russia, we've already seen that they aren't all that effective. It's great on messaging. I would go down that list. You know, when we throw out spies here in the in uh, the United States, particularly operating around Washington, D.C., Russian spies that are targeting us, they will reciprocate. So we're going to have to plan through all of our collection uh, tactics and techniques and access to make sure that we can continue to do that. I hope they I'm sure that they've done that uh, in that calculation. But that in and of itself is not particularly impactful. What's going to hurt I think Putin is saying, listen, we're going to step up on, on Ukraine. Not, I'm not talking about military involvement, more defensive weapons, more uh, NATO and U.S. troops in the region to make sure that they don't go uh, any other direction. We're going to, he ought to re-engage them on the, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, where they have stepped away, many believe, me included, that they were cheating on that treaty, and just start laying it out there that, listen, we know what you're doing. And we're going to try to put you back in the box. We'd like to have a great relationship, but we can't do it if you continue in the aggressive posture that you're in. All right. Thanks to all of you. We're going to bring those remarks to you from the White House when President Biden comes forward to the microphones. Coming up also, the deal that New Mexico's Democratic governor just made to try to move on from allegations against her of sexual mistreatment. That's next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.